Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of The Everyday Millionaire. As always, and before I introduce my guest, I'd like to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback that you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and continue to encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That's CEO at RainCanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd very much appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And as well, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback that you provide the team and I, as it is sincerely appreciated and beneficial, very helpful. So thank you. Okay. I'm joined today by a veteran real estate investor and a veteran realtor, Rain member. He's a gentleman by the name of AJ Haas. And before I speak with AJ, I just want to take about 60 seconds or so to give you a bit of a background on AJ. He is the owner of Vantage West Realty, which is a growing boutique firm based in downtown Kelowna, British Columbia, and was built and really it continues to grow by breaking what they would consider the traditional mold when it comes to how they practice real estate. AJ actually has a reputation as being somewhat of a real estate renegade, if you will, and he and his team have been shaking up the Kelowna real estate scene since about 2002. He has been a student of real estate long enough to have experienced at least two complete and very different market cycles. And AJ's come to specialize in investment real estate. His role within his firm and the community has really evolved to providing the necessary education for his clients for them to achieve financial freedom through investing in real estate. So supporting and arming his clients and providing with the knowledge on where to find positive cash flow, how to renovate for profit and, and using other creative and advanced investing strategies that many ignore or totally step over, AJ has carved out his niche as a real estate investment advisor and absolutely loves nothing more than educating people on the right strategy to use to capitalize on both a boom or a bust market. AJ actually views real estate in the Kelowna market as being rich with opportunity anytime if one knows where to look. AJ practices what he teaches and he's actually built his own real estate portfolio, which is really a wide range of investment properties and includes buy and hold, multifamily and single family rentals, 
development and resort properties, fix and flips and commercial space. So really the full gambit of opportunities that live in the real estate world, the investing world. So AJ believes by sharing the knowledge that he's gained over this many years, as well as others experiences, he generates the confidence with his investor clients to be able to take action and to build their portfolio. AJ brings a consultant's approach rather than what he sees as an outdated or perhaps even old school sales approach. And AJ is joining me today to share his journey and see that he's well on his way to cracking the code for building his business by helping others to succeed, to build their financial futures, investing in real estate. So without any further delay, let's welcome AJ Hazi. AJ Hazi, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Great to have you on the show, pal. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, AJ, what does AJ stand for? Adrian Joseph. Adrian Joseph Hazi. Yeah, I changed it when I was in the third grade and I was uh, getting hassled by all the kids here in Kelowna calling me Adrian. Rocky movie. <laughs> oh, no, I never even thought of that. That's funny. Um, I always like to start because it's so important to give people a context, the listeners a context for you know the guests on the show. What's your, I don't know, 30 or 60 second elevator pitch? If, you know, if I were to say, who is AJ and what do you do? What was your answer to that question be, AJ? I am... Uh serial entrepreneur real estate is the uh absolutely the business that we play in all the way through it from building developing sales management and investing and that's through vantage west realty vantage west realty is my outfit you bet and you're based out of Kelowna. we are now you're actually a you've been a rain member for quite some time as well you're you primarily you get to some of the meetings, not very many, because you're in Kelowna, but you're, you've been a Ray member for some time. I have been, and I've been playing uh, the CDs in my car for years. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, tell me a little bit about Vantage West. What is it that, you know, your brokerage, tell me a little bit about your business, and then we're going to start kind of working backwards from that to how you got there and, and what it is you do. But tell me a little bit, of, give me a little bit of background about what Vantage West is all about. Sure. Well, Vantage West is is kind of the first of its kind. Uh, it's a super team concept. There's 35 people here that all work together, and it you know a lot of people call themselves teams, but in, in fact, it's really every man for himself. This is a true team, and we are an investor focused brokerage. So we service investors by you know curating and finding great deals all the way through to management. So yeah, that's in a nutshell. That's what Vantage West is. Okay, so that's cool. Now we're gonna end up there because I want to hear more about the team concept in business. I think it's so. Uh, incredibly important, but you know the journey to arrive at where you're at today. Of course, you know that wasn't just something you woke up and started doing. I want to go back a little bit, and because this really is the journey of the everyday millionaire, you know, seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. So let's go back a little bit, AJ. What's your background? Were you born and raised in Kelowna, or wh- or where did you come from? Born in North Van. Parents uh, hauled us up here when we were real young, so uh, we came to Kelowna in elementary school. And uh, so, yeah, this is all I've really ever known. Is Kelowna. Now, <clears throat> were your parents, uh, were they just working folks? Did they, were they business owners? Where were they and uh, what they did? So uh, my mother was the steady one. She ha- She's an optician and uh, has had the same job for 30 years. My dad was the orangutan serial entrepreneur. Um, and I learned a lot watching what he did and well and, you know, and also where he fell down. So 
but yeah, definitely the entrepreneurial spirit runs in the in the male side of our family. So it really became about the life you lived was all you knew was being that self-employed or that entrepreneur. Yeah, eat what you kill. You have uh, siblings? I do. I got a younger brother and he works with me in the business. Oh, cool. So you guys are tight that way. Really tight. It's actually a ton of fun working with him. That's cool. Now, so go back a little bit. So you're, what did your dad do? Was he at multiple businesses? Where, where was he? Yeah, multiple businesses, everything from being in car dealerships to uh, building and selling birdhouses. But he also did a lot of uh, real estate flipping. Mm-hmm. He never put together much of a portfolio. He never hung on to anything or built any real um, substantial holdings, but was very good at finding deals, very good at spotting opportunity and capitalizing on it. So I learned a lot about that from him. Now, I mean, you're you're certainly successful in the world of real estate, and I know that Vanted West, have, you've done extremely well with that. And you got into the focus of building business, and so that came, I guess, honestly, in, in your roots. Did you go to university? Did you get post-secondary, or how was your education background? I'm totally school of hard knocks. Uh, we did the, you know, the prerequisite to get into real estate through the UBC correspondence channel, but no, no formal classroom stuff. Just been a voracious reader for since I was 19 years old, and and kind of just learned by trial and error. What did you do beside? Did you do anything outside of real estate, or have you just always been in the world of real estate? I mean, you're still a relatively young man. Um, you're not a kid, but you know you're no. a young guy. And but did you have some stuff that went on before real estate? I got into real estate at age 19. Wow. The only thing I did prior to that really wasn't much of a career. It was just, uh, you know, odd jobs. But yeah, the, as far as the career is concerned, real estate's all I've ever done. So what is it that kind of, as you started building real estate, well, early on, you're 19 years old and you get into real estate, was it because that was the way to make money or was there always, uh, was there, you know, was there something about real estate that always appealed to you or how tell you was what it was. I uh, I was in Australia being a beach bum. I was working as a DJ, surfing by day and DJing by night. And uh, I was trying to figure out ways to make my money stretch. And one of the things that I realized was that me and all of my friends were paying 30 or $40 a night to stay in these hostels. And uh, when you added it all up, it added up to, you know, three grand a month. So I went out and looked to see what kind of a house I could just rent for $2,000 a month or $2,500 a month. I can't remember what it was. And what I found was we could get a five or six bedroom house well located for that. And uh, I set it up and charged all my friends rent on a per room basis and zero costed my living situation. And that was my first, I mean, that was obviously just as a rental and then subletting it. But that was my first kind of eye opener that, you know, you could, um, you know, you could profit or at least zero cost your living situation by subletting. So when that situation came to an end, I actually got deported for overstaying my traveler visa I came home, but because I had saved some money, I had about ten grand in the bank, and uh, I went to my dad. I said, "Okay, I'm coming home. What the heck am I going to do?" And he said, "Well, the first thing you should do with that ten grand, in my opinion, is you should buy a house." And I thought, "Well, that's an interesting idea. How am I going to buy a house with ten grand?" He explained the concept of uh, high ratio financing to me, and I went to the bank, and uh, they turned me down. So I went and found a friend that hadn't spent the last two years drinking beers on the beach and had been actually working and creating a credit score. And him and I went joint venture on a, uh, a five bedroom house, which at the time was 160 grand here in Kelowna. And we bought a five bedroom house. And then the two of him, two of us with our $800 a month mortgage had three tenants renting rooms off us for 500 bucks a month each. And we were, we were cash flow positive living for free in a, in a pretty cool five bedroom house. 
So that was my first sort of, that was where I cut my teeth or tasted blood for the first time on what you could do with real estate. And and so that you're in your early twenties. I mean, I was ni- I was still nineteen at that. Time. Oh, you're still nineteen. So you did all that while you're nineteen. So yeah. what's interesting about that is, you know, we always look at, you know, character and mindset. You know, not everybody's built to be an entrepreneur or business owner. And so I'm always observant of people, right? You know, who kind of come out of the shoot as a entrepreneur, as a as a business owner. And so even at nineteen years old, that that train of thought, although it's very common to you or maybe I or some of the listeners, that isn't necessarily a a train of thought going. Okay, how do I, you know, how do I decrease my cost of living in Australia so that I can, you know, drink more beer and surf more and then actually maybe make a little bit more money at it. So it's the train of thought that you had right from the, right from early on that uh, got you introduced into the world of real estate and business. For sure. Now, so 19 years old, you joint venture with your buddy, you guys yep. do what you do. You've got an extra few bucks a month to uh, have a party or whatever, but did you get into the, like become a realtor right away or what happened after that? Yeah, I got licensed right away. Um, I applied to be an assistant to a gentleman that was my uh, my dad's realtor at the time, and he obviously took the uh, took the interview just really to kind of do my dad a favor. But at the interview, you know, I started talking 100 miles a minute, and he goes, "Man, you would be the worst assistant, but you might make a great agent." He goes, "But you're pretty young. You'll have to put a baby on board sticker in your rear view <laughs> or in your back window and throw some." Ba- baby crackers on the floor and make yourself look <laughs> like you're a little older. <laughs> That's funny. But, uh, yeah, so I went and I, I got, uh, I got licensed that year and, uh, just started door knocking and cold calling because none of my friends were at the age yet where they were even thinking about real estate. So, so how was it for you being a realtor at, you know, 20 or 19 and, you know, being that young, do you, do you recall back then, you know, some of the challenges of being youthful or were you able to use that maybe to your advantage? How was it for you? Absolutely. I turned it into a benefit. I remember being on people's doorsteps and they would say, how old are you? And I'd say 20, but let me share with you why that's to your advantage. And I'd share with them about energy. I'd share with them about the fact that, you know, there are realtors out there that have got 30 or 40 listings. And you know what, God willing, one day I'll be one of those realtors. But right now, if I want food with my meals next month, I have to sell your home. Don't you think you want an agent that has to sell your home? Right. And I just spun it into an advantage and they just would laugh and they'd go, you know what, let's try it. And I'd just make, do a risk reverse, uh, risk removal. I'd say, hey, guys, if you don't like what I'm doing, you can fire me at any time, no penalty. Let me just go to work, put me to work. Let me see what I can do for you. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you can fire me. And they, so that, they went. So that was, you know, that was pretty innovative. Was your, you know, in terms of even the thought process, was that something because of perhaps the reading you were doing back then early on? Or was your dad kind of supporting you through that phase and giving you some suggestions for you? Masterminding, what was it for you to get those kind of thoughts? You know, my dad always kind of made me feel like I could do anything, and uh, and he was always the type to say, you know, you know, you don't ask, you don't get. Just be bold and go out and ask for it. And so, you know, I think I got a lot of my courage uh, to do that from him. And of course, the stuff that I'm reading, I was able to kind of polish up my vernacular a little bit and make myself sound sound a little older. And uh, you know, I think it all kind of worked together. And I had some good mentorship as well at the brokerage that I started at. So yeah, you know, a lot of things came together to work well for me. As you reflect on, you know, yourself as a kind of a young guy, were what, what? How would you assess yourself? You know, if you step back, you know, today and looked at who you were as a twenty-year-old, you know, you look at all the things you did right, or you look at all how you were being. Do you sometimes, you know, is it, 
I can look back at some of my 20 year old, the way I was being when I was 20, I kind of cringe and other time, you know, other parts of me, I go, that was pretty, that was pretty cool for, you know, a 20 year old to pull that off for you. What was, when you look back on who you were being as a 20 year old, what do you think set you apart in reflection? I think I had a really high belief in myself that, uh, you know, that there were no limitations on what I could do. And, and I did pull off some pretty cool stuff. I mean, even starting my own company five years later at 25. And when I look, I, I look at 25 year olds now, I think, and I imagine this guy trying to pull off what I did. And I think this of, wow. And I start patting myself on the back, but the reality of it is I shot myself in the foot as much as I helped myself by kind of believing my own bullshit a little bit too much at that time. And, and I, didn't stay humble. And you know, by the time I was 25, I had a real ego and I had started to, you know, there was veterans in the business that I alienated because of who I was being at the time. So if I, you know, knowing what I know now from this vantage point, if I could go back and talk to myself in my early twenties, it would be stay humble, stay consistent, just implement. Don't believe your own BS. Just be a humble implementer. Hmm. You know, it's interesting that, you know, high performers, I I think that's a lesson that, well, I shouldn't say most get. I, I think that in the world of being a high performer, humility, you know, being humble, being aware of the ego that you have is a, you either get that lesson or you don't. And mostly when you get it, it's a, it can be a tough lesson. Did you, did you, did you kind of bump into a wall you know, that you created because of how you were showing up and how you were being back in those days, do you think, AJ? Definitely. I mean, there was a, there was a point where I had, uh, you know, in 2007, I was 25, and this is right at the end of my REMAX career, and I had made a mistake uh, in, in that I didn't realize that I had two competing offers. Um, one didn't reference the other. Long story short, there were two people who essentially had a contract on one of my listings. And it got, it got ugly, and I stepped up and paid the monetary downside, but it did have a bit of a negative PR on my company. And because of who I was being at the time, my company didn't rally behind me. And at that time, it was really, there was really no option for me other than to start my own company because I, would, I was given notice that I had to be gone. And, you know, looking back on it now, that was the best thing that ever happened to me, but also it was also the biggest eye opener that, you know, had I been a different person at that time, people would have rallied behind me and said, you know, you know what, no worries. We can, you know, we'll support you through this. And uh, that was an eye opener for me. And I read a book at the time called Egonomics. Mm -hmm. And another book I read called Leaders Eat Last. And both of those books sort of reframed who I, how I was showing up to the office. Cause I had a team working for me at that time. And uh, I just completely changed my whole approach to building a team and to building people and to building a business. Now, when you go back to that time, you know, you kind of consider that, you know, like I often ask the question is what's your biggest failure that turned out to be, you know, a blessing in disguise. And in some regard, I'm not saying that this is your biggest cause I haven't asked you that question, but you know, you would maybe look at this as a fork in the road, a failure that actually in some regards, it sounds like turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it did force your hand and, Gosh, you had really, you had to get innovative, which was to build your own business. Would that be the case in, 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 in this circumstance? Yeah, 100%. That, uh, yeah, that ended up being a defining moment for me, for sure. I don't know if I would say it was my biggest failure mm -hmm. to date, but it was, uh, it was definitely one of the defining moments in my career, for sure. 
So when you're looking, you know, at building your team and, and I mean, you're obviously taking a lot of lessons that you learned from your parents growing up. When you think about where you came from was, and I know that your dad was entrepreneurial, your mom was, she had a, she was a professional. Were those kind of conversations, the stuff that you had around a dinner table was your, you know, how did your dad raise you, for example, versus your mom and those kinds of conversations? Any recollection of that? You know, my mom was always about integrity and always about, you know, being your word and, uh, and being honest and, and managing your reputation. She was very good at, at putting that in my head. I wish I had to listen to her more, to be honest with you, when I was younger. I think I listened to my dad a little bit more. And, and he was always just talking about, you know, you if you're looking for opportunity, you find it. and You create your own luck. And that, that was very much instilled into me. Um, you know, everyone always thought, oh, you're so lucky. How do you find these deals? They'd say that to my dad all the time. Because I'm looking for deals. Mm-hmm. You're not looking, right? And so, you know, I, I clued into that early on. I didn't learn a lot about building a business um, from either of my folks because neither of them had done that successfully. But I did learn a lot about, you know, like I say, opportunity and integrity from both of them. So, you know, it's interesting about opportunities. You know, as we have both dealt with a lot of real estate investors. And I often coach, you know, people just kind of starting out in the world of real estate investment. And they go, where do they find these opportunities? And it's interesting because my response is, is that most opportunities in the world of real estate, what we would really consider opportunities are often created. They don't, mm-hmm. they just don't fall in your lap. You have to go out and create the opportunity. Absolutely. Are you of that same mindset? Yeah. I mean, there's very rarely is there a little golden nugget sitting there shining away that everyone can see that's, you know, in plain sight that you know, that's never going to happen. You have to go and you have to create it. You have to mine it out. It, it's really your mining. So you got into the world of, real estate, you were a realtor. When did you actually start buying real estate and investing yourself? So about the second year of my real estate business, uh, I came across an investor and he had been buying some uh, cash flow properties and I was helping him buy them. I helped him buy a couple in one year and uh, I thought to myself, why am I not doing this? What's going on here? So I started to read, uh, one of the first book I read was, um, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Of and course, then, that's I mean, yeah, gosh, I mean, that's, that's kind like, of a staple for yeah. everybody. And then uh, the Millionaire Real Estate Investor, mm. I read, and that kind of laid out, put out the pieces. And at the time, I still wasn't financeable. I wasn't financeable when I landed back in Canada. And being a realtor for the first three years, you're still not financeable, right? So I went uh, again. I did another joint venture with another one of my friends who was another steady Eddie guy, right? Had had a job since he got out of high school and built his credit. So him and I bought a vacation property. Um, you know, one of those ones you can rent out by the night, by the week. And uh, we held that for 10 years together. We just sold it last year. But um, yeah, we bought that and managed it. And, and that was our that was my first cash flow property. I mean, I like to think that the, the house that I had bought with my first get, uh, first partner there was a cash flow property. But this was the first one that I didn't live in. Now, just going back to, you know, circling back to your first property that you bought with your first joint venture partner, the one you lived in, uh, what did you ever do with that home? We lived in it for five years, and then uh, an opportunity came for me to buy something else that had development potential. So I had moved on, and at, at that time, the property had appreciated considerably. I think we bought it for 160 and sold it for 375. So we had done well. We each took our, you know, 150 grand that we had, and uh, carried on. In fact, that's not totally true. We 
both partnered on a on a quick flip, something cheap, a little condo. I think it was for one hundred twenty thousand that we bought. That uh, we just put a twenty thousand dollar lipstick renovation on it, and then resold it for I think one hundred sixty five, hundred seventy. Made another twenty grand each, and then went on our separate ways. So the you know Cologne is I mean is it's a it's a it's a certainly a city that's going on these days. But back then it was not where it is today. You know you were building your now new business. Uh, you're, you know, in the world of being a realtor, uh, you're starting to put a team together. How were you working through the, perhaps the previous reputation? How did that wound finally heal for you in that kind of a, that environment? That one was just, you had to overcome it with, with tenacity and, and just sheer force of will. Cause it was a real issue. I mean, the other agents, you know, they would, especially when we were a brand new boutique outfit, when we first started and there was the middle of a recession, like we had just started, we opened our doors in April, 2008. That is when the headlines started hitting the news rack about the global financial crisis and all of that. So we had to overcome not just my reputation, but, you know, people kind of were all gravitating towards, you know, the big brands or the strength at that time. Cause they, you know, they weren't sure what was going to happen, all the uncertainty. So we had a lot of things, you know, a lot of headwind at that time. So it was just, get creative. I got extremely creative at that time. I learned, I learned about lease option. I learned about trading and uh, I made my business in 2008, nine and 10, almost exclusively on uh, vendor finance agreement for sale, all the different variations uh, that you can put a real estate deal together with. And I was getting, you know, lots of people that, you know, were at roadblocks. They couldn't either, they couldn't sell their house and they needed to trade out of it, or they couldn't buy a house and they needed to find some way of using vendor finance or whatever to get in. And that was really how I made it. I was the only guy doing it. Now, wh- when you think about Kelowna and you think about that time when real estate, you know, the, you know, was starting to crash, were you using those kind of strategies because of people had to get out and there was others that still wanted to get in or, you know, what was the, what was the economic conditions that you were getting so innovative to work through? Was it that a downturn back then was affecting Kelowna in that way as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, the downturn absolutely affected us. The tap completely shut in the middle of 2008. Nothing was moving. And our recession, unlike the lower mainland, our recession lasted for five years. And so there was this period of time where if you got a listing, you had about a one in four chance of actually getting a deal on it. And so what I realized was that there were a bunch of other agents uh, like myself that you know, had inventory that wasn't moving. So I started arranging these, we called them go fish lunches. And we would show up with our list of our list of uh, inventory or the properties that we had for sale. And we would ask each other questions. Okay. When, when your house sells, what are your people planning on doing? Are they moving up or are they moving down? If we found somebody that was moving up, that was kind of like the bingo moment. Like, okay. So do we have somebody with a more expensive house that would take this guy's house on trade? And we would just put deals together that way. And they would often represent two ends or more when we do these deals. So they're very, they would solve people's problems in a big way. And people at that time, they weren't being real picky about which property they take on trade. They just wanted the two or $300,000 differential because it solved their problem at the time as well. So we were able to put these deals together quite, quite frequently. And that's really how we survived. So that's innovation. That's creating opportunity. Now, did you, you know, were you built to lead that charge? Did you kind of, were you the guy that brought that all together, AJ? I was. I don't know if I was built for it, but I definitely had the necessity to do it. I mean, I really, truly believe I'm unemployable. So when lots of people were heading for the hills or going back to work at Future Shop or getting, a, you know, a lot of realtors left the business at that time or joined some MLM or whatever they did, 
they, uh, you know, I, I just didn't see that as an option for me. I thought my only option is to stay here and be successful with this. And, and I, I really looked at the downturn as an opportunity for me to galvanize myself in this business as not just some young kid that had, you know, flash in the pan, had some success during a hot market. I saw it as a real opportunity to, to show people what I was made of and, and just get creative. When you think about your biggest failures that turned out to be a success, you know, you see the crash, you, you screw up on a deal that, you know, two guys own the same property or a person owns mm-hmm. the same properties, two properties or whatever the story is behind all that. Yep. Do you, do you, is there a, a moment in time where you look at a failure, cringe about it, but realize that it was really a, another defining moment in a big way. And it, it, it actually was a tipping point, perhaps even around the direction you took your business or the success that you, you know, later got because of the failure, anything around that? We had built, I mean, there's a couple I could reference, but one of the things uh, about the actual business that I built, my real estate company, at the time I had a partner and him and I had built a fairly traditional real estate brokerage in terms of how it was structured, which is every man for himself and, you know, each individual agent or team within the agency had its own admin and its own marketing budget and all of those things. And we had created this terribly inefficient thing that that's really well how all the real estate companies operate is very inefficient there's no economies of scale because it's every man for himself and we reached a uh, you know a point where the company was losing money it was 2012 and uh and my partner at the time basically hit me with the shotgun clause and it had a really weak moment for me as well he knew that where my situation was at and i uh you know at that time was faced with another decision do i pay him this amount of money and move on by myself and, you know, cover this nut on my, on my own and make something of this business? Or do I, you know, do I fold and go back into, you know, XYZ Realty and try to make a go of it that way? So I had a decision to make and that one took some soul searching, but I made the decision to, to write the check. And I, of course I had to borrow the money at the time. I wrote the check, got sole custody of this losing enterprise that we had and started to rebuild it. And when he left, he took half the team with him as well as the admin. I had no choice at that time but to get a broker's license, which I didn't have at the time. So I had to go back to school. I had three weeks to get a broker's license. So I got myself a managing broker's license. And uh, and I also hired a coach at that time. I had to get real humble and, and realize that I needed help. So I hired a coach from Toronto. And I paid money I could not afford at the time to uh, to get the guidance that I needed in restructuring it, putting together something that was sustainable, something that was scalable, and something that was, um, you know, at the end of the day, really turning our industry on its head. So it was a humble humility moment to realize that a, I needed help and, and that uh, B I really was burning my boats behind me. There was no choice at this point other than to succeed. You know, it's interesting to, you know, as we hear and we look at those defining moments, you know, I always like to dig in on, you know, the defining moment, we choose a fork in the road. Yours was to choose to, you know, to buy out your former partner and go on that journey. But it's also a acknowledging who you have to become to be able to travel that road. Did you have an awareness around that, AJ? So in the world of your own personal professional development, because I see that time and time again, where did you have that awareness of who you would have to become? Or was it still really kind of intellectually and mentally about what you'd have to do? What was that part for you? I think my awareness at that time was that I was not the complete package as a CEO at that time and that I had some shortcomings. And a book was recommended to me, a book called Rocket Fuel by uh, Gino Wickman. 
and it talks about the relationship between a visionary and an integrator. And I realized that I was a visionary, but I lacked the skills as an integrator. And so for me, the awareness really came from acknowledging my own shortcomings. And then the aha moment was when I read that book and I realized that there, it's not a shortcoming so much as it's a yin and yang that needs to exist between two different people. And so I brought that person on. I found the integrator. Now, did you bring that person on as a partner or what did you hire them as a president or an operations manager, general manager? Operations. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big realization for you. The, the coach that you hired out of Toronto, was that coach a, a real estate coach or a business coach or combination of both? What was the coach that you hired? He was a real estate coach. Yeah. Uh, specific to teams. It was the only one of his kind that was helping people structure a team that was sustainable. Because even the, the current team model that most people operate under is, is not a sustainable model. It doesn't work for the team leader in any way. So he helped me uh, create a value exchange that want, that helped help both parties win, both the team leader and, and the people that work underneath it. So I want to get to that. and But before I get there, because I want to hear a little bit more about that particular model, because you know we have real estate investors that are listening to this. We certainly have realtors that are listening to the show. And and around the education and the journey of people that are successful in any industry or as a career or business. I think it's important to understand a little bit about the structure. But before we get there, you know, as, as you are learning about yourself, what are some of the observations that you're making that were kind of like, did you have some aha moments back there? I mean, aside from, you know, reading the book Rocket Fuel and saying, okay, I'm, I'm not that integrator. I'm kind of more of the visionary. You're also, you know, I can hear it in you and, and of course, having had conversations with you in the past, you're the, you know, you're the sales guy that you're just a sales guy. I mean, you don't even know you're selling. It's just how you are. Mm-hmm. So that's something that has to come with being a visionary because you're always having to sell the vision. Did you have some aha moments about who you were and what you had to do or what you came by naturally versus, you know, something that you had to develop, for example? Definitely. My nature is I love to get started. And I'm a classic open loop creator. And so I love to, you know, take a new idea and get it rolling. But then I'm not really the guy that's going to take and implement it all the way through and see it to the end. And on my own, all I do is create chaos of open loops. So I knew that I needed to have some really good people around me and not necessarily people that on the surface, when I sit down with them, that I click with them in a big way. That was the the big thing for me was that, you know, people, they want to sit across from somebody and they think about going into some kind of partnership or whatever. And, and they're thinking, oh, I like this person. We're going to vibe well. And that's really how my first partnership with the real estate company that I ended up having to buy him out of, that's how it was born. We went to Vegas, had a blast. We were essentially cut from the same cloth and we're thinking, wow, we should definitely start a business together. But the reality of it is we both had the same strength and we both had the same weakness in, in many ways. So for me was realizing, okay, if I'm going to be the guy that's going to create all these open loops, I'm going to need to be somebody that makes the rubber meet the road. I need to find that person. And I started surrounding myself with, with people who profiled differently. You know, it's interesting, you know, to go off on a bit of a tangent. We often see that with investors who are trying to create joint venture partnerships, you know, they're, they have to get really clear that, you know, if you're the person without the money and you're the expert, then you've got to partner with people who have money, not other experts who don't have money. And it's, yep. it, it seems so simple. It's like, it seems very obvious, but when you're in it, it's not necessarily always obvious. You learn the lesson by partnering with somebody who is not your polar opposite or not even really all that opposite. He's, mm-hmm. he's just you and mm-hmm. something to be aware of in any partnership. 
So tell me a little bit about your environment and the concept that you have in building your team or building your brokerage. What sets you apart from, you know, I guess the norm in terms of a brokerage in the world of realtors and real estate? It's all around the people that we bring in and what that what the people add up to is a culture. And so once we got really clear on what we wanted the culture to be here, we started to create it. And we realized that creating it had to be slow. We could have hired a bunch of people right out of the gates and, and, and some of them would work and some of them wouldn't. And that's really how real estate companies typically work, right? Uh, you know, a, a Remax or whatever would, would hire 50, 60 people a year with the expectation that maybe 10 or 15 of them would work out. It's kind of that throw mud against the wall and see what sticks. We knew that in order to have the culture, and that's what's lacking in all these other companies, is there's no culture. It's every man for himself, and, and, and that just that's not how what we wanted to create. So when we got real serious about it, we said, okay, we're going to flip things around, and instead of being, if you have a real estate license, you can come and work here, which is what everybody does, we started hosting these recruiting nights where we would advertise for you know a couple of months leading up to it, and then we would do every quarter, a recruiting night, and we'd put 20 or 25 people in a room and we would explain our culture, we would explain our value proposition and then give them the good, the bad, and the ugly on the industry if they hadn't quite made the decision to get in. And then we would ask them if they wanted to take the next step. The way to do it was to fill out a disk personality profile, was to do a, you know, a basic, not an essay, but tell us you know, point blank why you think you'd be a fit for the team. And we'd start the process that way and everybody would stay. Because what I realized is everybody wants the culture. You know, the money is great and, and all the opportunity is great. You just have to satisfy that part. But what they really are attracted to is the culture. So if you're building a business, I think that's the number one thing to focus on is to create this culture. People will stay for that reason. Our retention is through the roof because of the fact that there's just no reason to leave. There's no greener grass. You're not going to find this anywhere else. Now, beyond culture, and, you know, because I've, I'm so aligned with this conversation in terms of culture, what have you done in terms of environment? You know, when you think about working environment, is there something that you pay attention to in terms of how the office environment is or mm-hmm. uh, what any kind of an environment do you create for your team that allows them to, you know, sure. perform real well? There's a few things. Um, one of the things is we have created a very Socratic environment. So I may have a great idea, but the way that it's rolled out is it's an idea that's floated to the team. Everyone weighs in on it. It goes, you know, it makes its way around. Everyone has the opportunity to put their ideas forth and see if those ideas withstand scrutiny. And if they do, we implement them, but it's very Socratic. The other thing that I do is a very bottom-up leadership style. I don't, um, I don't set quotas. What I do is I ask them all to, at the beginning of the year, tell me what they want to accomplish next year. In fact, we go a step further with our goal setting. We, we ask them, okay, what are your savings goals? What are your investment goals? What are your lifestyle goals? How much tax are you going to need to pay? And we figure out how much money they need to make in order to just achieve everything they want to achieve. And we break that down, how many, how many transactions they'll need to do and build a business plan around that. But it all starts with what they want to achieve. And then when that comes to a transactional number, say they want to, say it's going to take them 40 transactions to achieve their goals. When I have my whole team, I add up all of what their goals add up to, and then I build the team's business plan around that cumulative number. So they see the business plan for the company really being a supporting mechanism for what they want to achieve. And that, that's been a huge, huge piece. So I think most sales jobs, you know, the top decides what they want to make based on a growth number that they want to hit. And, uh, and then they hand out quotas, which I think is demotivating. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the 
my, you know, 35 years later in business is that I love to sit down with the team one-on-one or even as a group, but, you know, we always end up at some point discovering what the goals of that person are. Because if you have, a, you know, especially in a, you know, I, I'm going to say in a sales environment, in a, a real estate environment, or a realty environment, gosh, if their goals aren't aligned with the corporate goals and vice versa, that's just a, hot, a lot of hard or heavy lifting. And there's no, I guess, there's just no flow with that kind of a relationship between, you know, an employee or in this case, a realtor and your brokerage. So it, it really serves any business well to know that you're supporting, if, if you can support your staff or your team to win and by them winning, you win. I mean, there just can't be a better or a more ideal scenario is what my own philosophy is on that. And it sounds like that's what the direction you go with what you're trying to develop or what you are developing. Yeah. Agent. It's just, it's about empowering people and creating leaders and, and letting them unlock the lifestyle of their dreams. You know, and if I can create, if I can, we, 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 Say to our folks, you know, give us a decade, we'll make you a millionaire. And it's not just in what you're going to earn here, but it's being around people that all invest in real estate as well. Everybody here is looking for deals. Everyone in here is looking to create cash flow and, and to try to zero cost their life with positive cash flow. Everyone's on the same page here. And so when you're around that, I mean, we've got an inside sales guy who, you know, he's bought three homes in the last two years. And now, you know, his $3,000 a month, monthly nut, we call it, is totally zero costed. And that, you know, it's something that he never believed in a million years he could do. And he's done that in two years. So when people see that, they think, wow, I can do that too. And so every, it's just become this palpable culture where everybody wants to create this lifestyle for themselves through real estate. And yeah, yes, selling it and serving people is the vehicle we use to create the income that allows us to buy the real estate. But, you know, the, it's a bigger picture thinking, right? What is the, you know, as, as the leader of your team, CEO of your business, do you, are you out deal making? Are you at transacting real estate uh, quite a lot still, AJ, or, or are you really just running the business these days? What, what is it for you? I spend probably 60-70% of my time doing business development, running the business, helping these guys run their business, supporting them. I mean, this week, for example, I'm sitting with everybody one-on-one and diving, doing a deep dive into their business. I've got a leadership meeting later this afternoon. So, I mean, that's what my days are spent primarily doing. Having said that, I still love doing deals. So I do find myself on the weekends or, or from time to time diving back into that. I, I do have some past clients that will only work with me and still like, you know, they know I find deals all the time. I do a lot of joint ventures still. I'm still doing development. So I've got some past clients that will invest in things that I'm doing and we'll do stuff together. When you're looking at how you're building your business and your real estate portfolio, are you more interested in growing, you know, maintaining a, a financial future through real estate investing or through building the asset of business or just kind of all of the above? How do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a whole ecosystem, but where I think the multi-generational wealth is going to be created is, is through ownership of, of cash flow producing assets like apartment buildings, even the single family home assets. I've started to convert a lot of that equity into multifamily. Any of that stuff. I mean, I, I have clients that own 20 single-family homes throughout town, and they've never made more than fifty or $60,000 a year in their life, and they're worth $10, $12 million bucks today because they've owned this stuff over time, 25 years of owning a portfolio. You know, it's, it's not an accident. These people end up deca-millionaires, right? Is your brokerage 
primarily focused on investors or are you just cover the whole gambit of, of real estate investing or real estate transactions? Most of the content that I put out is investment focused and thereby we attract a lot of investors, you know, writing the, the blogs and for the magazines that I do. But having said that, there aren't enough investment deals to satisfy everyone's goals here. So we are a full service brokerage. We definitely handle typical, um, you know, buy, sell, you know, sell your $700,000 house and downsize to a condominium. We handle all, all of that as well. But in terms of my passion or and what I really feel like my unique skill set is, is to, you know, is to work with investors and help them achieve their goals. So it sounds though too, is that, you know, when you use the word passion and, and what is the passion around what you're doing? So you wake up in the day and what really gets you out of bed ultimately every morning when you think about your day and and think about what you're creating, what is it for you that kind of fires you up and lights you up? Well, I think one of the things I learned about myself is that I really love variety. And I think that this business offers such a tremendous variety to us. And so every day can be different. And I'm very creative. I like to create. And so whether you're buying something, fixing it up and selling it, there's the creation. Whether you're sitting down with somebody, sitting across the table from somebody who's brand new to real estate and, they, and you ask them, why do you want to do this? What is the point of this whole exercise? And they start to tell you, you know, what their dream is and what they want to accomplish. I look at that as, as creation. And every one of those situations is a little different. So that creates the variety. So for me, what gives me passion is, you know, creating all this opportunity and creating the pathway for people to achieve their dreams and the variety that no two, no two days are different. So that's what's got me sort of launching out of bed every day. So you get to do that in, I guess, two formats. One is with the real estate investors themselves in terms of achieving their financial goals, but as well yep. as supporting your team to hit it out of the park with what they want to achieve in their own career goals or their own business goals around being a realtor, I guess. Absolutely. And the development side of it gives me that too. I mean, every day doing the developments that we're doing now, every day is different. And there's the creation, there's the trying to figure out what, what people will want. You know, you've got this eight acres to figure out what do people want? What's the full expression of this land, right? And you start working with designers and architects and engineers, and that's a really cool process as well. Tell me a little bit about the development side of it. You know, I, I know that a number of RAIN members and listeners overall, you know, as much as they're real estate investors, many of them, and business owners overall, mm-hmm. there's there's always this, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a, I, I, what's the phrase? I'm not calling it a mystique, but there's something about development that people go, that's got to be the next level. That's got to be the next level. But I, you know, d- development comes with some expensive lessons generally. I, it doesn't matter who I talk to They're Yeah. Well, that one only cost me a million bucks to learn, mm-hmm. you know? So when you look at development, what was your journey into the world of development and what does it look like today for you? Sure. My first foray into development was a very costly lesson. Uh, in 2005, I bought a really nice property just above the water. Uh, was, I had to bring in an investor from Vancouver and, uh, and also a joint venture partner here from Kelowna. So I had you know, 25% stake in the, in the whole thing. And uh, the guy in Vancouver had controlling interest. And then, of course, my partner here. So we, we went into it as the minority partners, which was, um, that was an expensive lesson. Because in the end, when the market turned, we had made a pretty major mistake, which was to demolish the, the beautiful home that was on the property. And uh, we were ready to, we had gotten our zoning finally, and we were ready to carve these into lots. But at that time, there was nobody that was going to build. So that asset was worth a lot more with a house on it than it was uh, as raw land. And, you know, with a house, it was appraised at 3.5 million bucks. 
as raw land, we ended up selling it for 1.1. So you can, even my 25% stake of that was, was a pretty expensive bill. Sure. And we paid, we paid, we were into the property for about 1.7 by the time. So I lost everything we had had in it and all of my idea of what I had coming, you know, and that was an expensive lesson and a hard pill to swallow that took years to kind of fully play out. That was probably enough for most people to say, okay, development's not for me. I think most people would have probably put their tail between their legs and just went back to what they were doing. I had an opportunity uh, fall in my lap, really. Well, it doesn't fall in your lap, but someone came to me with a property that was on three acres. Uh, it was a family property of theirs and gave me an opportunity to buy it. And it had a house on it. So I bought it uh, as just as a as a rental property and, and had it sitting as a just as a rental covering itself for a couple of years while I saved uh, a little bit of money and went through the process of rezoning the property and, and uh, really trying to reimagine what that property could be. And we did some pretty innovative stuff. We put Kelowna's first Green Street uh, on there and got council support from, from our uh, municipality at the time to do something that had never been done before. And this is a, you know, a street that has no sidewalks, no gutters. It was a very uh, zero-escaped, very funky, winding street that we put in. And uh, we wanted to do a green subdivision with all modern homes. This was before it was really uh, popular to be building these West Coast contemporary homes. So we put this plan together, and uh, and then, of course, it was like, okay, how are we going to finance this? So I went and raised a little bit of money, uh, a combination of private money, you know, expensive private money, and uh, and a few people that were in my network that wanted to just place some equity and uh, and hopefully earn a return. So we, we were able to raise some money, and we did that development. And uh, you know, it's five years later, and just to give people an idea of the timeline, it's five years later now, and we're down to finally getting a return of capital. Because the way development works is your first money in and your last money out. So yeah, the numbers can be sexy, but um, you're going to have to weather at both an emotional and a, and a financial storm as you go through it. Because like I say, last money out means really everyone's paid and then you finally get your return of capital and hopefully your ROI. That's interesting is that, you know, as I, you know, over many years, I've not done development myself, but I've certainly uh, stood on the sidelines and been uh, privy to a lot of the goings on of guys that have done development. And time and time again, I would say that I don't want to call it a mistake, but if, if it's a rookie mistake, it's not having a real plan B or a plan C. And, mm-hmm. and so you put all your, you know, you put all your eggs in one basket and I have to say that, and I'm sure it's, you know, and I, it's very limited to what I know in terms of scenarios, but the scenarios that I am aware of has been guys who have bought a development, bare land, and they, it's all in, they have to make it work or it doesn't work. But ultimately it always seems that, you know, there, there's that economic downturn or there's some shift, even if it's short term, once again, mm-hmm. that a three year blip turns into several more years beyond mm-hmm. that three. So you knocking that house down when actually was the oversight because you then at that point went all in. The only option you had was to do a complete development and sell. Is that would that be a fair statement? Yeah, and in, in that case, we ended up not even um, selling the lots individually. That wouldn't have worked. We didn't have time, the luxury of time to get that done. We actually had to sell the whole parcel to somebody, and it's still sitting as raw land. But it was it's sitting there to the kind of guy who should be doing that kind of stuff, which is someone with staying power. <laughs> he paid cash for the land, and he doesn't need to sell it. Right. And uh, we just had no staying power at the time. I mean, you can do it. It's a massive risk, even this one that you know that I'm just completing now. At the time of starting it, 
I had no business really playing in that arena. You know, there, there was no reason why I should have been with my, you know, my financial situation. There's no reason why I should have been playing in that arena, but I took the risk and and it did pay off. I mean, the market's been great since 2012 here and, 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 but it could have turned, right. It could have been a, it could have gone the other way. So what's the conversations you're having with yourself along the way? I mean, aside from the doingness and, you know, to your point, um, you know, you, you look at a five-year risk period. So let's just say in that one development that you described and, you know, you talk about the, the challenge of development is you go all in and, and really everybody gets paid before you do. And what's keeping you going over that five years is it, it, it can't be just about the potential money. You know, there's got to be, I, I don't want to speak for you. So what is it for you that keeps you going through that period of time? Is it really the carrot at the end or is there something in between on the journey of de- the land development? What is it for you? I mean, I really believe that it's not so much about the journey as it is, the, or it's not so much about the end destination as it is the journey. The process is is fascinating to me. Going through this and everything that I'm learning on a daily basis is really, I feel like I'm really growing as an entrepreneur. And I think that is a big part of the excitement. Sure, there's a huge carrot at the end. And I've already got plans for where that carrot gets planted. I mean, I'd, you know, I'm two steps ahead with cash and it doesn't sit in my hands for very long. I know where I'm putting that and the next I'm going to continue to leverage it and continue to try to parlay that money. So there's, there's the excitement of what it leads to, but the journey along the way and everything that you're, that you're learning as, uh, as you come across. I mean, every day there's a new challenge, right? Whether it's an engineering challenge or whether it's a, you know, you've got suddenly, you know, you've the, the city of Kelowna has given you a hard time about a particular thing that you didn't, you didn't anticipate or you can't get a building permit or you've got a client that wants to change everything. It's, there's just so many little things that come up and you got every day, you got to navigate around this stuff. And at the time it may seem like, Oh man, I wish I didn't have to deal with this today. But when you get through it on the other side, you think, you know what, nothing can stop me. We can keep going. There's no, nothing is going to come up that we can't, that we can't overcome. So what is your mindset around that AJ? How do you kind of view the world when, you know, shit is hitting the fan, you're up against the wall, you're dealing with the bureaucrats of, you know, a city or whatever that might be, or uh, an architect buggers up the drawings or whatever that is, you know, that you're, or you got somebody on your team that's melting down. How are you built or how are you wired? Do you think that's different than other people who hope to be successful and don't ever seem to achieve it? What do you, what would you say is one of your, you know, how do you show up that's different? You know what? I think I, I think it was through Rain. Actually, you guys brought in a guy by the name of Dr. Paul Stoltz, who had this thing called the adversity quotient. Is that was that that's for right. you guys? Yeah, that's Dr. Paul Stoltz. You bet. That's right. Yeah. Um, my adversity quotient is off the charts high. I can handle a lot of shit and keep going. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really what I look at. Problems to me are almost energizing. I like I like the opportunity to to dig into something and and to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like even to my own detriment, my personality is such that I create chaos to create problems sometimes because I, I need it. I need, I kind of get a juice from it. Well, you're, and you're, it's interesting is that, you know, sometimes because of my physical build, you know, the, and my, I have that same tendency. I just, a problem comes on. I just put my shoulder into it. And, mm-hmm. and I know that you physically, you're kind of built that way too. You're a stocky, strong guy that just puts your shoulder into it as, and it shows up even in your physicality around stuff, but you, you actually look for that problem and you are more driven to solve it when the problem exists. That's how I'm hearing you. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're aware of? Like, do you actually, 
when you look at your own personal professional development and your own attitude, are you, is that something that, is that a muscle you're working on all the time? Are you reading? Are you continue to get coaching? Is that something you're really aware of in terms of what you need to do in your development? I think in terms of developing my adversity quotient, I, it, I'm really trying to just maintain it by managing my own energy, managing my, you know, my state. So trying to make sure that, you know, I put good stuff in my body. I'm work, you know, I'm going to the gym. I'm reading good, good content, putting good stuff in all the time. That's really the main thing for me is just managing my state so that I'm in a position to do what I enjoy well, which is solve problems. I think if you're coming from a low, a low state, not to sound like Tony Robbins here, but if you're coming from a coming at it from a low state, you're going to have a hard time overcoming these challenges that are inevitably going to come up when you take on big projects like this. What kind of development are you a voracious reader? Do you do you read lots of stuff around leadership, around uh, mindset, around uh, your own development, or or are you kind of past that? You're just always aware of it and you pick up stuff as you go along. What is it for you? Gosh, I don't think you ever really get past it. Um, I'm always reading something. I mean, I just read a great great book called Never Split the Difference, mm. a book on negotiation. Loved that. Just always trying to put new great content into my head. I go away on vacation and I'll read like three or four, three or four books while I'm gone, you know, and my wife laughs because she likes to read like a nice, something with a nice plot. And, you know, I'm reading, you know, books, <laughs> books on uh, economics and books on strategy and things like that. But so we talk about, you know, you're, you, you, you just mentioned your wife. So tell me a little bit about how instrumental is, you know, your significant other in your success and, and, and how do you operate it? Is she in the business or has she got her own business? Where's Where's that for her? Well, firstly, she's been hugely instrumental in my success. Um, I probably don't tell her that nearly enough, but uh, the reality of it is without her supporting me from behind the scenes, there's no way I would have had the confidence to, to take on as much as I have. And uh, we met, when we met, she was quite young as well. She had had a similar path to me. She had bought a, a home quite young at 19 against her father's advice. She didn't have a dad like me telling her to do it. She actually went against her father's advice and did it. Similar thing, joint venture with a, with a girlfriend, and uh, she when her and I met, she was twenty five, so was I, and uh, she already had three pieces of property, which I thought was pretty cool, and uh, we were able to actually partner on, on on some things together. Initially, we uh, we took advantage of the downturn in Arizona together and uh, built a nice little portfolio of, of joint assets that uh, you know created enough cash flow that she didn't have to work. And so now she does some cool stuff within our business, uh, does a lot of the event planning uh, for my brokerage. She does, makes beautiful gift baskets for our clients for closings and, and uh, you know, is, just supports us on the charity side, does a lot of great stuff, but, you know, gets to now kind of design her own, her own lifestyle without having to go and have a job. What do you think is for you around relationship with your wife and when you guys are, you know, we talk about how important it is uh, you know, and how important she's been on, you know, supporting you and your success and as a couple. So what is it that you, you know, is there something that you do as a husband or that you do as a, as a, uh, a couple that you would suggest or, or how would you guide some people around that? Yeah. And this is a lesson I, I learned doing it wrong, uh, the first way, but you know, something I've come to realize over time and something that's really helped us, you really have to make sure that you're in alignment with your vision for the future. Because when you start going down this path of, building a business, whether it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a real estate business or whether it's any other kind of business, 
you're buckling up for a, for a decent span of time where it's going to be chaos, both financially and emotionally, before things really kind of hit their stride. You're going to go through a period of time. And if both parties are not in alignment as to what the point of the exercise is and what the, the vision of the future looks like, if you don't have a clear picture of why you're doing it, it's going to create chaos inside your relationship. It's going to create dissension and resentments. And you know, I went through that. But now I think we both really understand the why behind what we're doing. It's not just a jumbled up mess in my head and I'm not just expecting her to support all my ideas, you know, without an understanding. Now I've really brought her into the vision and she gets it now and it's created a nice a nice harmony for us. So you're you're really understanding that the the communication between you and your wife has been become a pretty essential part of, you know, how you guys have success. And and it, once again, you know, in in the terms of the podcast, you know, when we look at the context, I always get back to that, you know, seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. It's not because there was one thing. It's, it's all of these little things that people in business or in a successful career or a successful relationship. I mean, it takes effort. It takes mindful, thoughtful kind of thinking to get through this. And, and so you and your wife in that, in that world, you know, the communication strong, you, you know, yourself, she probably knows you as well as you know yourself. And oh, yeah. and what about her on her side? How do you how do you find as a entrepreneurial husband, how do you support her, do you think, in the best way? Um I think one of the things that I've come to learn in, in supporting her is she's really wanting to know that when I come home and it's the two of us together that I'm intentional about my time and that I'm focused on her even for a period of time before I kinda or if I don't bring my work home and sit on my phone the whole time and tie up loose ends and constantly be in this sort of state of 24 seven working, right? You have to be focused and intentional. So one of the things I learned was that, uh, you know, you have to create boundaries around, around your phone and around your, you know, your returning of emails and that kind of thing and, and, and support them in, in hearing, you know, letting them download their day to you and, and taking a real interest. Cause I think driver entrepreneurial driver type mentality is sometimes we're not that interested in what everyone else has to say. We're very hyper-focused on what we're doing and that's a learned behavior to, to get out of that and just to focus on your partner and, and listen to them and, and hear what they're, uh, what's going on in their world. What's your rules around, uh, you know, you're a realtor, you're a business owner. I'm that way too. Um, I'm finding that I'm noticing my uh, tendency and my addiction to, uh, you know, technology and devices. And, and I'm having to create some rules for myself. And my wife, Stephanie, and I talk about it all the time as self-employed individuals with teams and staff. And, you know, in our world, we've got a couple different, you know, we got businesses in different provinces. So do you have some rules that you and your wife engage around or do you, that you personally engage in terms of the use of phone and cellular devices, as they say? Yeah, you bet. Um, it's a tough thing to do and I'm by no means am I perfect at it. But one of the things we strive to, to do is when I first get home, I put the phone down right away. So I don't bring it in to like, when I come through, like I, as soon as I walk in the door, I put the phone down on a little, the same little thing that I put my keys and wallet and everything on. And it just sits there. And then I go and I spend 15, 20 minutes just talking to my wife. And then typically we're making dinner or whatever the case is. I'll go back, check my phone, return a couple of texts, return a couple of emails, whatever the case may be. But the phone doesn't come to the dinner table. That's another boundary. There's just no phone at the dinner table. I think that just kills conversation. And uh, particularly if one person's got more going on on their phone than the other, it creates resentment on the other side. So no phones at the dinner table. And then uh, lastly, no phones in the bedroom. Um, I leave my phone charging upstairs. 
my, our bedroom's downstairs. And then when the alarm goes off in the morning, I have no choice but to get up right away. I can't hit the snooze button because it's nowhere near me. So I run up and uh, start my day, start my morning. And uh, But there's no phone in the bedroom. I'm not doing that last-minute sort of email scroll or worse yet, the social media scroll that a lot of people will do while they're laying in bed next to their significant other. I think that's a romance and a connection killer. So those are kind of our boundaries, and we're working hard to stay true to that. I think it's an awareness too and an agreement that, you know, of course we, we try and stay on those agreements. And then as a couple, we have to remind ourselves what our agreements were and that's really just great relationships and, and uh, you know, having those kinds of, of that level of communication and understanding. So how do you define success, AJ? You know I mean? You've achieved a lot. You're doing a lot. You've got a great business. How do you, how do you define success? Freedom of choice, being able to do what I want to do with whom I want to do it with as much as I want, where I want. And when is enough enough for you or is enough enough? Do you, <laughs> you, you know, do you have visions of retirement? I mean, you're still a, a, a young man, but do you have visions of retirement? What, what is the future look like for you? You know, a big thing for me, I wanted, there was a milestone for me. I wanted to hit, uh, by the time I turned 30, which was to be sort of financially independent and be able to just retire if I wanted to. It was, it was a, Something I came up with when I was twenty, you know, this ten-year vision, and we did. We took a took a trip around the world uh, after our honeymoon, and uh, I was away from the business for six months, and it was amazing. I wouldn't trade that time for the world, but I don't think I'm wired to be retired, and I think I'll always be working in some capacity. And I really enjoy team building and business building. I think um, success to me is working because I want to, not because I have to, and getting to a place where. I've got such great people around me that my goal and my job really is just to be their champion and, and support them and, and help them build and offer mentorship and guidance and leadership to people that, uh, you know, that are on my team. And if that equates to 10 to 40 hours a week, I couldn't tell you, it'll, we'll find that group when we get there, but it'll always, I'll always keep a foot, one foot in the business for sure. You know, you brought it up when you were 20, I mean, or when you were younger, sorry, where after, on your honeymoon your, or you took a trip around the world or took six months off, whatever that was. So yeah. as you sit here today, you know, if you were to be able to give yourself some, you know, your 20-year-old self advice, what would that advice be? 20-year-old self, again, it would have to go back and say, be humble, uh, manage the relationships, not just of the people that are really close to you, but all the people in the community, all of the vendors and suppliers and your, you know, the people that you work with inside the industry that are your competitors, everything, manage all of those relationships and just you stay really on really great terms with everybody. Um, that would be the big one. And then uh, I probably would tell myself to forego some of the luxuries a little longer, you know, eat humble pie just a little longer before you order the Aston Martin. That would, uh, that would be my advice to the 20 year old self of mine. The world of real estate, in terms of being a realtor, having a brokerage, I mean, it's a, you, you know, you're, you've come to realize that it's a very relational, it is a relational business, not transactional to have longevity. Sure. You know, if you're, if you're giving advice to other realtors, I mean, you've, you've achieved a lot and, and had a lot of success as a brokerage, but as a realtor, what kind of guidance are you giving realtor, you know, a young realtor just starting out? Know your why, know why you're doing it have a very, very clear understanding of your white hot why, the thing that gets you out of bed, because you're going to come across a lot of 
a lot of adversity in this industry. And if you've got a strong, clear why, you can mow right through any adversity. And once you've got that figured out, I would say become a machine at lead generation. Whether you're an investor or whether you're a realtor looking for clients, lead generation is going to be the key to your success. And when you master that, learn leverage. Once you learn leverage, whether it's through technology, through capital, or more importantly, through people, that's when you really can start to build a business. So is a, you know, because we have investors listening in and when you're talking to investors and if you're giving them some advice on how to choose a realtor, you know, do you have a a couple of key questions that would be something you'd make sure and you want to say, make sure you ask your realtor this, and this is what you should expect to hear. Do you have that kind of guidance or advice that you would provide AJ? First thing I'd want to know from a realtor is what their own personal experience in real estate investing would be. And unless they were attached to somebody on a team that had a very wide breadth of knowledge in the real estate investment space, they probably haven't come across enough of the challenges and don't have enough of an understanding of the, of the real estate investment game to offer great advice. Most realtors are not wired to give investment advice. They're wired to sell bedrooms and bathrooms and, and the vision of the emotional aspect of real estate, but not so much the intrinsic value or the opportunity that exists within within the real estate. So I would want to know what their own portfolio looked like. And if they pass that test, you know, I would ask them some basic questions about, you know, what do you think is a reasonable ROI that I could expect? Uh, let's talk in cash and cash on, or cash on cash return. And what's the sort of prevailing cap rate for, for multifamily? What's the prevailing cap rate for, for single family? And just see if they know the answer. See what they say. If they can explain what a cap rate is, if they can explain cash on cash return and the differences between the two, then likely they have enough knowledge to give you some guidance and help you meet your goals. Would you agree that, you know, in terms of choosing a realtor, you're also, you know, looking at the quality or the character of the individuals because once they get past the understanding and the knowledge of that particular person, do you, you know, if you're an investor and you're going to have a longer term relationship with that realtor, I guess being able to, you know, like who that person is in terms of what they stand for is, is pretty important as well. So, do you, do you see sometimes that misalignment where things go off the rails because of that? And on the realtor side of it as well is it's, I guess you, are you giving advice to a realtor, for example, you know, some, some investors are just assholes, but you got to suck it up or are you going, you know, punt that real punt that investor because it's not worth your time and energy or judgment call, I guess. I don't know. What's your thoughts on it? Yeah. I mean, when you're sitting across the table from whether it's a, you know, potential realtor that's going to work on your behalf, you have to look at it like, do I want to be in business with this person for any length of time? And, and, and a good relationship isn't shouldn't be a one transaction thing. You're setting yourself up for, this is going to be my go-to professional for the next decade. And the other next the next wrinkle to that is don't look at it just purely on, do I want to have beers with this person? You have to think, do they complement me in a way? Do they shore up some of my shortcomings? Are they leveraging me? Um not just do I like this person. The person has to obviously have the integrity. Those are kind of the permission to play values. But do they represent a skill or a strength that I personally lack? Right. And you know, if if you're great at finding deals, and some investors are, but they're not terrific at due diligence, you may want to pick your real estate agent based on their prudence. The way that they show up to work may be that they dot every I and cross every T. But if you're more wired that way, let's say you're an, a successful engineer and you've got that C-type personality, 
you don't necessarily need this agent to be the most detail-oriented person in the world. You need them to be the deal finder, the ear to the tracks person, the promoter. That's who you need. So you have to figure out who you are and then who it is that you need. And then obviously make sure that there's a, you know, a relational fit there as well. So we look at, you know, what you've achieved. You've got your brokerage. You're great at building team. You've started to really learn and you, you know yourself, not just started. You're, it's ongoing. But, you know, there's certainly a time where you really realized that you had to get to know who you were and who you're being. And so you work on all that mental and the emotional and, the, you know, the spiritual kind of things that you go through in the development as a leader and the CEO of your business. And what about on the physical side of it? Now, you are you talked about going to the gym. What Do you have a daily routine that you adhere to and you're pretty strict with? Or what's your, what's your workout or what is your daily routine in terms of how you look after yourself? How do you start your day, for example? Yeah, great question. Um, our whole team subscribes to The Miracle Morning. It's a book by Hal Elrod. And everybody on our team, I mean, we, and we, we're not perfect at it. You go through seasons where you fall off this, of course. But what the miracle morning essentially is, is you wake up really early, you get up, and in there's a different sequence depending on who you are, but most people get up, drink a big glass of water, do some meditation, do some stretching, work out, get the blood flowing, and then you sit down and you plan your day. Do some journaling, and then you launch out the door. And if you can get centered every day with a workout, Make sure you get, you know, you get some water in you right away, get your energy up, and then you get, now you're in the right state to actually plan your day and be intentional about it so you don't go through your whole day just reacting, prioritize, and then boom, you're energized and you go out the door. When we're on, when our agents are doing that, when I'm doing that, I'm three times more effective than, uh, than when I'm just working in a reactional, reactionary mode. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of consider myself blessed because I'm an early morning, I'm a, an early riser to Always. I always have been. And, uh, you know, I, so I'm a 5 a.m. guy lots of times. If I, And sometimes I'll wake up at 4.30 in the morning. And, and if I do, and I, I go, yeah, no, I'm awake. I'm not going to go back to sleep. I'll, I'll just sit up in bed and do my meditation. And, and I generally try and do some form of meditation every day. But all of what you just said, I've never read the book Miracle Morning, but I will. But you just really described a, a big part of my morning going forward. How early a riser are you, AJ? I know you wake to an alarm, but how how are you a 6 a.m., 5 a.m., 7 a.m.? What's your day start generally? Me, I'm not the earliest riser on our team. I am I kind of go back and forth between 6 and 6.30 is kind of my balance, mm-hmm. depending on you know if I've been traveling or, or whatever the case is. But um, I'm also kind of a night owl, too. Like I, Some of my best yeah. work I get done at sometimes at 11 o'clock at night. I'll be sitting there typing away, writing content between 11 and 12. That seems to be when the creative juices often flow for me. So, um, you know, I need to get seven hours of sleep a night. And so depending on what time I'm going to sleep, I'll either set my alarm for 6 or 6.30. I've got guys on our team that get up at 4.45, though. Mm-hmm. They're just animals. And they like they like getting up in the dark and having the first two hours of their day when the rest of the world's asleep. And that's empowering to them. And they love it. And they get tons done. You know, I'm built that way too, but it's interesting is that I think the, you know, the key here is to know yourself because as you said, you're a bit of an idol. Uh, Richard Dolan, as you know, is my business partner in the real estate investment network. And, you know, he's not necessarily a early morning guy, like get up at five. You know, he certainly gets up and his son, Mateo, and he gets him off to school and he does all those things. And, uh, but his, his, it's not an, you know, it's for him, he'll, he'll get really creative at 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he'll send me some idea or some thought process and, you know, I'll, I'll know it was, you know, sent at 1am. 
and, mm-hmm. and, and so he's very much, but he knows that about himself. And I've actually got mm-hmm. a couple of people on my team, right. With rain. That is the same way. They're not particularly early risers, but man, you know, they're still going hard at midnight sometimes because mm-hmm. that's when their brain is firing. So I guess the, the key there is, you know, to not deny either, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know that the person that's getting up at five o'clock in the morning, going to bed at nine thirty, getting a ton done in the morning. Is that an, is that an advantage over the guy that's getting up at six thirty? who's getting a lot done between 10 and midnight, right? It It's all about what you get out of your day. Now, if you're spending between 9 in the evening and 11.30 at night watching television, and then you're getting up, you know, kind of at 6.30, 7 o'clock, a little later into the morning, then you're definitely at a disadvantage to the guy that's waking up at 5. But it all comes down to knowing how you're wired and knowing and, and playing to your strength. Now, what about diet? Are you, I mean, we all go off the rails on our diets, but are you, are you a, you know, are you a diet focused guy? I'm really lucky. My wife cooks very clean and because she's got the ability um, to do meal prep for me. I I mean, I get really healthy lunches uh, coming with me. Um, I also do get, because our office where we're located, we don't have anybody near us and and I'll eat a couple of entrees during the day. I like to eat every few hours. Um, I will get these healthy entrees delivered right to my office and they're just everything's dialed in all the macros everything it's i'm not a vegan or anything like that but definitely eat clean good healthy proteins and and you know complex carbohydrates and just try to eat clean so the uh how often are you going to the gym try to get at least at least three to four times a week right play a game of squash in between like something competitive so having that physicalness is is an, an important part of your week yep you bet I see that, you know, time and time again with, you know, the most successful people. Now, I, I want to just qualify success, you know, is, is, you know, we've talked about it briefly earlier on and, and is that it isn't, a, it isn't really the goal of money. It's, you know, it's about being the journey. It's about creating a great life. And I think that really defines success. And, and if you, you know, what it is with your bank account is secondary really to that. Mm-hmm. So as we start to wind down the show, uh, AJ, one of my most fun things to do is do some rapid fire questions for my guests and uh, get your brain firing. I know that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, just some fun questions to kind of wrap it up. What's your favorite swear word? Shit. That's, that's pretty tame. What profession other than being a, you know, business owner or a realtor, what, you know, what would you do? Professional boxer. No kidding. If heaven exists, what would you uh, like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? We've been waiting for you, sir. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? Nine. Really, eh? So yeah. it's interesting is that, you know, I find that most self-employed entrepreneurial people really rate themselves high as the weirdos. (laughs) It's a a trend. So, um, you know, you kind of identified what you're not very good at, but what are you not very good at? If it was very specific, you know, you said you're a visionary, you know, you're not a, an implementer. So, but what are you not very good at? What skill? I get lost very easy. I can't find my way out of stores in the mall. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dude, we were so like room desk or your car. What do you clean first? Desk. What's your favorite tune? Do you have one? Uh, Little Bones, Tragically Hit. Favorite movie? Top Gun. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for my mother. Wow, good one. 
gosh, I'm always reminded, you know, when I ask my guests what they're grateful for, it takes me to a place of what am I grateful for? My mom is 89 years old, and I am so grateful to have her in my life at 89 years old. My dad has passed away, and but I was uh, visiting her uh, on the weekend, and my daughter and my grandchildren were there. And I'm thinking to myself, how awesome is it that my grandchildren get to spend time with their great-grandmother? You know, I think that's really so cool. cool. I'm so grateful for my mother as well and all she was to me. I'm grateful for you being a guest on the show, AJ. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, working with you in the future and uh, lots of cool stuff going on. So thanks for your time. Thanks for your insights. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time... Patrick out.